Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. My guest is Jamal Abdel Chaston, who is the artistic director and co-founder with Marika Gabori of The Breath Project. Jamal Abdel Chaston is a founding member of Universe's Theater Project, an actor, poet, uh, I guess several hyphenates at once. The Breath Project is a series of eight-minute and 46-second-long theatrical pieces, which will be running this weekend, Saturday, October 24th, at 2 p.m. Pacific and continued at 5 p.m. Pacific, and Sunday, October 25th, at 5 p.m. You can find them at thebreathproject2020.com. These are all video. Is that correct? That's correct, Richie. How did the Breath Project begin? I understand in August you asked for submissions. The way we got started it was the because of the unfortunate and tragic murder of George Floyd that sparked for many some kind of action. For me and Marika, the action was this project. And the way it came about was Marika had asked me to write a piece that was eight minutes and 46 seconds long. And once I did that, we saw the value in the piece and she wanted to record it, document it. After that, the question was, well, now what? And she had the idea of creating an archive that would be like a living time capsule because her thinking was that there must be other artists in, throughout the country who are doing may, maybe feel like they're engaged this way to write something that's eight minutes and 46 seconds long. She had first suggested that maybe we try to submit it to some other theaters who are doing virtual festivals of some kind. I went back to her the next day and I said, well, you know, why don't we just do it ourselves? I mean, no one's in their spaces right now. It's not like brick and mortar, like we're trying to get in, you know, a festival inside someone's theater. So let's just take that on ourselves. It grew beyond that because we reached out for partnerships around the country with other with theater houses. Um, so we started with the relationships we had. My first call was to Cincinnati Playhouse uh, with Universes. I had just come back doing a production in Cincinnati. So I uh, reached out to the education director, Danielle Rumerson, who actually used to work at the Marin Theater Company. And then Marika reached out to Southern Rec, which is where we both met about 10 years ago. And then from that, those discussions with those artistic directors and other theater professionals, we, we saw what the project could be. And so that's how it was born. You did an interview in August where you said that when she first approached you about this idea of doing a piece eight minutes, 46 seconds long, which is the amount of time it took for the entire George Floyd event, you originally said, I don't want to do this. I'm, I'm done with this. What changed your mind? I was reluctant at first. There's an article that says, I said I was giving up on writing social justice work and all that. That was a misquote. That's the work I do and have always done. 
I was reluctant because I had honestly, since we were sheltered in, I was on a writing tear and I had, I was writing a lot of work around the topic. So I felt when she asked me that, I was like, I don't know. I've been writing a lot on that anyway. I don't know if I want to write something that's so on the nose. But then when I did write it, like it, it spoke to me and it spoke to her and we saw the value in that. So then we decided to take it a step further. What exactly did your piece turn into? What was it? It didn't really have a title. It was called 846, and it was a solo monologue, and we filmed it at Palo Alto Children's Theater, who has been a great supporter of The Breath Project. We actually could not have been doing what we're doing without their support. They helped us build the website, and Judge Lucky, who is the artistic director there, has been super supportive of the project. So we filmed it there, and the, the piece is about it's basically an African-American male who goes to Stanford, really intelligent guy. You know, he's he's happens to be dating a white woman. They're going through their struggles. This is the backstory, right? None of this is in the actual monologue. You know, maybe it's three in the morning and he's in the kitchen and they get into a discussion. So the discussion starts because his girlfriend asks him, what's it like to have been called the N-word? And so he goes into a, this monologue about the first time he heard that word used toward him. And then you time it, edit it down to exactly eight minutes and 46 seconds. So when I wrote it, the hardest part was obviously to get it in that frame, right? And so I wrote it, kind of read it a few times, saw if I fell in that ballpark. And then when we recorded it, we had a timestamp running. And so I had to just work to end it on time. And that's been the challenge for all the artists who have submitted if somebody submits something at 8 minutes 47 seconds, that's not going to work. It has to be exact. It has to be exact. And we were really holding true to that. And for me, the reason why that was so important, you know, we've been taught as Americans to never forget 9-11, right? I feel that we should also never forget 846. And the reason why is because this is the first time that many of us can remember the possibility after this tragedy, right? Like the possibility of things actually getting addressed and getting some traction and not just having a conversation, but actually being able to move the needle. Do you think the needle has been moved? Not yet. I think we're trying to move it. You know, one of the difficulties is that racism is so deeply ingrained in American culture. Yeah. The the difference here though is, I guess, the number of allies that came out of the woodwork, in a way, to join the protests and make it a continuing operation. No, exactly. And that's where I think for the first time, the possibilities are so great, right? But we also know that moments like this have occurred before, maybe not to this extent. You know, we probably have to go back to the 60s to see any kind of turmoil that even resembles what, what we saw in the streets a month ago. But because of the people who've joined and, and witnessed and saw whatever, we all saw the same thing. And many of us felt the same way, regardless of the hue of our skin. And so in that, I think it's like, yeah, it's a wake up call for a lot of people. It's like, okay, how can I help? And so I think the, the opportunity is there, but the opportunity in that window can quickly close if we don't act, right? If we're not asking for the right things, if we're not continuing the conversations, if we refuse to or if we forget and 
my thing is like stay outraged, right? If once we're not outraged any longer and we're not sheltered in and we have a vaccine and things are kind of back to normal, then what, right? So uh, I think it's important to keep the foot on the pedal and to continue to hold people accountable. And for me, again, it came down to, I'm a theater artist, so I'm gonna take the fight to the arena I know best, and that's American theater, and I'm gonna do what I can there. You know, I feel it's my job and the job of many of us to continue in American theater, to continue to push that, that, that agenda and to continue to work with partners. And for the Breath Project, the, the value and the strength is in our partnerships. We're looking to work with American theater. We're looking to work with theater houses that have the intention of dismantling systemic racism and, and building a more equitable playing field. But again, like I said, the opportunity is now. Do you think at some point, I'm jumping the gun here, we're going to come back to the origins and what, what the project has, but do you think at some point that a few of these could be put together and turned into something that could be performed on the stage by one or multiple people? Well, it's funny you should mention that, uh, Richard, <laughs> because when we approached our partners, who people who are theaters who are now our partners, when we approached them, bare bones ask was to support artists during this time in any way they could. We sent out the call for submissions. And then once uh, we started to get those responses, the ask was, if there's an artist in your community, in your region, in your town, maybe coming into the theater and filming something or however you can support them, then we'd like you to do that. The other part of the, our ask was, is that they commit to some kind of production when time allows, right? So that is part of the makeup of the Breath Project. It's not just this virtual festival, but we want to roll out a national festival that actually includes live performance and live work. And that's something we're working toward. But we have to, you know, first be told we can go back into our theaters and do the work that we do. Jamal Abdul Chaston, Marika and you get together. You're going to do this. You do your own eight minute, 46 second piece, and you decide, well, let's expand this. How do you get the word out to get all these people to submit these pieces? Again, that is the strength of partnerships, right? Like if it was left up to just me and Marika, I mean, we obviously would have almost an impossible task. But the fact that we, we, we gathered 24 partners around the country from New York to Hawaii, and every region is covered. We got Midwest, West Coast, East Coast, Central, you know, and so... We met with the partners, and once we decided we were moving forward, we chose a deadline date. We put together a call for, uh, for submissions, and it was up to each theater partner to also send out that call. So the call came from all around the country. It wasn't just coming from us in the Bay Area. It came from everywhere. Two of the companies involved are in the Bay Area, Palo Alto Children's Theater and Marin Theater Company. As I was looking at the list of people who submitted, one of them is a name that I strongly recognize. Actually, a few of them are names I strongly recognize, but one from the Bay Area, Aldo Billingsley, who's done a lot of work with many theater companies, and he's a familiar name to those of us who go to Bay Area theaters. How did Aldo Billingsley get involved? 
The other ask that I forgot to mention for each of the theaters who decided they wanted to come on board was that they bring board a BIPOC artist to be a curator. So it had to be an artist of color who would curate the work. The work that we got, we spread it out amongst the curators that we have, right? So we wanted those artists to be artists of color, and that's how they chose they chose Aldo, who is amazing, by the way, as you know. These works, how many finally were submitted? We received, to date, we've received 98. Of course, we're still receiving, just to let people know that the archive is open-ended. We, we haven't selected a closed date for that. So we will see work until we decide that, you know, the archive will shift and maybe change. But that work is meant to live in the archive as long as the artists want it to. The other thing about the archive is that we don't control the work at all. We just have links to their works. So we don't own their work. The artists have complete control of their work. We are not in any way a producer of their work um, at this point. So if you go to uh, thebreathproject2020.com and you click on a particular piece, it will take you to a YouTube video that they control. Right. YouTube or Facebook or wherever they stored it. Like I said, we got 98, I believe, to date. Uh, out of those, we were able to, it was like 69 of them that actually met the criteria because the earlier submissions, a lot of them, I think, were things that people already had recorded, pre-produced works. Out of the 69, 24 in the festival. The 69 are, are all available on the archive. They're all on the archive. And even though the ones that aren't in the festival, we are still finding ways to support and promote those works because part of our mission is advocacy. So even though there may be artists who didn't, whose work didn't get in the festival for whatever reason, we're still going to promote and find ways to support that artist. So the festival itself, if you go to that site, you'll see one after another after another. But at any time afterward, on demand, you could go to any one of these 69 works and just watch. Is that correct? That's correct. And like I said, they'll be there as long as the artist wants it to be there. And for any reason, if the artist wants to take it down, they can do so. It also acts as, like YouTube does in a sense, it also acts as a place where artistic directors or maybe casting directors could go and look at work that's there, right? Um, so, you know, it's just another way to promote that artists can promote their themselves and, and their work and as an education tool because we've already started using it in that way. Getting back to these pieces, rather than just talk around it, let's look at three or four pieces that really, really knocked your socks off. So pick one, and what's that eight-minute, 46-seconds piece about? So there's one, actually the one that was done through Palo Alto, and it's a youth submission. We were hoping to get more youth submissions, but the ones we got were pretty fabulous. Transcending Time, I believe, is the name. High school kids who are talking about isolation. They're also, they use Google Maps to do this production, to put this together. So it's really creative and interesting and different. The other thing about the submissions we got, and we understood that, you know, we asked artists to be as creative and as fearless as they wanted to be. Even though we were calling theater artists to submit, we understood that the definition of American theater or live theater right now has shifted, right? Because there is no live theater. 
a lot of things kind of bleed into film in terms of what we receive. That one kind of borders film and theater because it has some both elements. But like I said, it has some really cool, cool, innovative ways of telling the story, I thought. Another one that was like just crazy awesome was by this gentleman named James Brunt. And his is called Waiting for Death. And again, this is another one that also borders film and theater, but it's just beautifully shot and the text is beautiful. And as an actor, he's just, he's just, yeah, it's just really strong. I'm going to forget names because I've gone through so many of them, but there was one done at Cincinnati Playhouse. I believe the gentleman's name is Derek Snow. He's the one who wrote and directed it. That's filmed in a theater. It's again, beautifully shot, beautifully done. The actor who's uh, acting in that is just killing it. And there's a lot of great works and there's a lot of things that moved me that didn't make it into the festival. Like I said, you know, again, just because it's not in the festival doesn't mean it's not up to snuff. One of the things we wanted to make sure is when we asked curators to curate was that they weren't comparing them to the last thing they saw, right? It was like, this is not a competition. This was more about look at things, you know, uh, to see if they fit the criteria mainly. And then beyond that, you can judge on how it moves you. Among the criteria, did everybody involved have to be a person of color? How did that criteria work? Yeah. So we asked that the person submitting be an artist of color, but there are people from every background that are in some of these recordings, some of these films, recorded theater pieces. So it wasn't that it was exclusively like we weren't allowing anyone else to participate. It was just that we wanted to allow the artists of color to get their work submitted and to get their voice out there, capturing the urgency of the moment. It also is about making sure that not only artists of color are involved in theater, but people at the administrative end as well. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Because that's been a big issue, uh, particularly in New York theater. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And, you know, again, when we're talking about dismantling systemic racism in American theater and building a more equitable playing field, for us, that looks like not just on stage, but in the audience and in the administrative offices as well, right? So you're exactly right in that. One thing I noticed in the Bay Area is unless a project is specifically geared toward an audience of people of color, the audience winds up white. Mm -hmm. So it's more than just subject matter. It's in anything, death of a salesman, even yeah. people of color. I think that, if nothing else, from what I've seen, just in looking at how theater companies are dealing with this, there is a strong move in that direction. People get it. Am I right or wrong? Yeah, I think you're right. So I've been in theater for about 25 years, if not more. I've sat in a lot of meetings and a lot of discussions regarding diversification, um, diversifying audience, diversifying actor, you know, a uh, uh, talent pool and all of that. And like you said, I think there, there are a lot of these theaters are, are trying to do that work. I think where they, where the challenge is, I don't think I know where the challenge is, is oftentimes the board, right? The board may not be, you know, in line with that, you know, with the direction that the artistic director wants to go. So there's a lot of pushback there. 
there's also the issue of just knowing how to do that, right? And also the fact that it is a business. So if you have a mid-level to multi-million dollar level theater, bottom line is they got to keep the doors open. They got to pay staff, right? I use the example of during holiday season, they know Christmas Carol is going to sell, right? They're not going to take Christmas Carol out of their season. How do we work around that? It's a multi-pronged problem. It's not just the theater's willingness, right? It also comes down to economics because let's just face it, theater for the most part is an elite entertainment, level of entertainment. Not everyone can afford to go see a show, even if they wanted to. The other part of that is that a lot of communities of color haven't been exposed to theater at that level. When I say education, I mean that if audience education is important too, because you need to make theater accessible to those communities so they feel that they're part of it and they understand the different nuances that go into going to see a show, right? The other problem is that even with the willingness to, to go in the right direction, again, it's the knowledge of knowing how to get to those audiences, right? And, you know, when I was, we were just at Cincinnati Playhouse and I used them as a perfect example. They did a great job of promoting our show, which is a, it was a show called Americus. It was about what is, you know, the craziness that's gone on in the country in the last four or five years, right? It's a very politically based show. They did the work. They had advertisements on black radio stations. They had flyers up in barbershops. They had things like that. They were, they, were, they were thinking beyond their normal marketing. And they also had, I'd say they had a member on staff, African-American woman, who really got the word out. And so there was a, there was a lot of word of mouth once the show started going. Yeah. So there is, like you said, you're completely right. I think people are trying to go in the right direction. But what I want the Breath Project, part of what I want us to be able to do is to sit down with those theaters who have the right intention, but maybe are struggling to get there. And I want to be able to work with them so that we can get closer to that goal, right, of having a more diverse audience and more diverse talent pool and administrative office as well. There's also one other element, which is trying to keep theater alive. I mean, I go to a lot of these shows mm -hmm. and... Sometimes, you know, they could use a special rack for walkers. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you know, and the younger audience is more diversified and you got to bring them in. You got to find ways to get younger people into theater. I grew up in New York City, as did you. And my parents were theater buffs. And I used to see them go out and wish I could join them until eventually I did. I mean, it's just a lot of challenges to that, right? But I, I do think that, like you're saying, the audiences, the, the younger audiences are more diverse, you know, and you have these older audiences that are usually the ones that are catered to, right? And theaters, I think, I think one of the things is they have to look ahead. They have to be able to look 20 years ahead and go, like, where do we want to be? Who do we want to be talking to in 20 years? And it can't be the old women and the old men with walkers, right? Because they're, you know, they're probably not going to be here. And so, you know, it's like, let's build toward that now instead of waiting so we have to respond to it. I remember once social media became popular and everyone was kind of heads were in their phones, right? Theater was talking about, oh, my God, how are we going to survive this? No one has the attention span to sit through a three-hour show anymore. Taking all that stuff into consideration, work toward building a more equitable... There are artists out there, there are artists from every hue who are creating great works 
and their works need to be included in the season. And then you will get those audiences. And before you know it, those audiences will start co-mingling. But if we're just like not talking to these communities, then of course they're not going to show up. And of course they're only going to go to the shows that speak to them, right? Because they come once a year, right? Like the universe has always did great in February. It did great in February. So what has to be done? And again, I, I think I am fortunate. I don't have all the answers for sure. But I, I think I've witnessed enough over those 25 years and I've heard enough and I've also participated in the counter of going into communities and putting in the work and doing workshops and building relationships with communities around the country that I understand how to do that. And so that's the stuff I want to impart and share with our partners and anyone else who wants to listen. Jamal abdul Chasten, let's talk a little about your own career. Now, you were born in New York City, Lower East Side. How the heck did you get involved in theater? So you know, you know New York, uh, and I grew up actually near uh, Henry Street Settlement. It was a few blocks from me. So in terms of the arts, I was definitely exposed to the arts as a kid uh, through programs and things that were going on around me. I moved to the Bronx. My family moved to the Bronx when I was about nine. I was always into music. I was not a theater kid, didn't know much about it. I was always a writer. I had written poetry. I wrote songs and poetry and things like that. But my mother took me to see Mama, I Want to Sing on Broadway. She took me to The Wiz and she took me to an August Wilson play. Those are the first three plays I saw. And I was just blown away by that. I was like, I didn't know we could do this. I didn't know that this was a possibility. And so I kind of stored that information away and I still didn't pursue theater. I was, like I said, I was a music kid. But once I got more into my writing, it just kind of organically shifted from writing a poem to writing a monologue to writing a play. You know, it just kind of started to organically shift. At what point did you get the acting bug? So in the 90s, we were doing like what they call spoken word, right? And in the 90s, we had a real rich community in New York um, at the New York Poets Cafe, Brooklyn Moon. Um, you know, all these different places that, that we would go to share our poetry. And that's how universes got together was like-minded artists who were kind of in the same community that decided to work together. But from that experience, I mean, I had friends of my actually a really good friend who I haven't seen in a minute, uh, Danny Hawk, who is a uh, solo artist from New York, not doing solo right now, but, you know, he's, he acts in movies and different shows. And there was a event at The Point, which is in the Bronx, and it, it was run by Stephen Sapp and Mildred Ruiz, who are part of Universes. At that event, I was reading something, and it was really, like, theatrical. And Danny said to me, you ever think about acting? And I was like, not really. And he was like, you should think about it. And so that, that was, like, it. That was it. And I was like, maybe I should. <laughs> you know. So that kind of opened the door for me. At this point, has the acting bug kind of taken over or are you still seeing yourself more as a writer? I'm more of a writer. You know, if the role is right, I think I have a range. I think I have things I can do really well. <laughs> but I, I really enjoy bringing a character to life on the page and watching that kind of develop from an idea to like a production or something. Like, it's just amazing how that, for me, like that process still is magic for me. I was looking at your bio, and there's a couple of fairly recent projects. One is something called Crawfish. What's that? 
Crawfish is a solo show I'm working on right now, actually. And Marika Gabori will be directing. I've pretty much almost finished with the writing, but because, you know, we can't do live theater right now, I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do with it. So I think I'll be doing some kind of Facebook Live excerpts of it, you know, on Facebook Live or something like that. Crawfish is about, it's a character that I developed for one of Universe's plays called Ameriville. We wrote that after Hurricane Katrina, and it's, we were looking at all of the isms that kind of like surfaced after Hurricane Katrina. You know how people were just being attacked for looting and all this crazy stuff, that, a lot of crazy stuff that was being said in social media. It was basically, it's a piece that takes place in New Orleans, and Crawfish was a character I created for that. He's a guy who loses his home through the storm and then gets bought out for like dirt cheap uh, money from some developers. And then I wrote another monologue for him. They wanted uh, revisited him in America that we just did in Cincinnati in January, January or February. And so after that, and I wasn't really acting a whole lot in the last five or six years. And so after doing that production in Cincinnati, I kind of got the bug to really jump back in with both feet. And I said, you know, why don't I just really kind of flush crawfish out a little bit more? So the piece I wrote about him in uh, Americas, he's now living in the Bay Area and he's living one of the most expensive cities in America. And he's living by the freeway, like unfortunately a lot of people do in the Bay so now that piece is taking a look at his just called Crawfish from Home to Homelessness. There's a book, too, called The Revolution Will Be Live from TCG Books, which is supposed to come out. Is that your writing? Is it uh, an anthology? Yeah, it's an anthology of Universe's works. You know, my writing is included in that. It's kind of looking at our canon of work and going back to Slanguage, which was our first play that we did at New York Theater Workshop in 2000, right, right before 9-11, we did that play. And then looking at our work over those last 20 years, pretty much. One thing that's going on right now, since this is airing before the election, uh, are any of those pieces about the election or is there some kind of time-dated element there on any of the pieces for the Breath Project? I don't think so directly. I don't remember anyone saying anything about Trump. Yeah, there may be some references to it in some of those works, but you know, I think most of the works, when we reached out to the artists, we, we let them know that it, it didn't have to be about social justice topics. Like we wanted to capture work that represented the time we were living through. So that includes COVID and missing your family or losing a loved one or whether it was to the virus or to the police virus, um, you know, so it, we, we tried to let allow for a range of works. Most of that said, most of the works are about social justice, but we do have works, like I said, about isolation, about works from teachers talking about what it's like to teach their kids in this moment, works about dating during the coronavirus. Like it's, there's, there, there's a range of works, uh, but it is, it is about capturing this moment in time. So that said, there was a, a limitation to what people were probably going to talk about. Are there works uh, involving the lesbian, gay, trans community too? Yes. There's not a piece directly from, I, I mean, I know there are definitely works from gay and lesbian artists. I guess the answer is yes. One final question for you. As an artist, and it kind of comes into a little context of 
what we've been talking about. We try to create universality, but there's also topicality. We don't want something to become stale if something changes. So say, if I do an interview about politics, for instance, and it's all about Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, well, that becomes pretty stale, except as a historical record after whenever the election gets settled, hopefully November 3rd. How do you as an artist in all of your different roles, how do you deal with the tension between trying to create something permanent and yet at the same time dealing with topicality? Most of my work and the work of universes has been political. Uh, We've never shied away from the politics of the moment. So it is very topical, right? But what keeps it, unfortunately, what keeps it fresh is the fact that a lot of these issues that we talk about have not changed much over time, right? When we look at the, again, if we look at homelessness, homelessness is an issue we've been, growing up in New York, you know this, after the 70s, right, when all of those uh, mental health hospitals closed down, we had a slew of homeless, right? So we're talking, what, we're talking 50 years ago? We still have this problem. (laughs) So it's not like, you know, that's when I remember it as an issue. I'm sure it was an issue before then. And 50 years later, in my lifetime, the problem has not gotten better. So if I do a show about homelessness or a piece about homelessness, and unfortunately, it's still relevant. If I do a show about racism, unfortunately, it's still relevant. If I do a show about crime in America, unfortunately, it's still relevant. You know, like, so a lot of these topics don't lose their relevancy. I list one of my favorite albums or favorite songs in the world is Marvin Gaye, What's Going On? And the reason why that song is one of my favorites is it's beautifully orchestrated. It's just a great song. But it's also, unfortunately, still very relevant. (laughs) I mean, he's talking about Vietnam, but you can take out Vietnam and put anything in there. So that's how I see that, although it can be challenging at times, it still stays relevant. And so that is the challenge as a writer to write work that is not so on the nose per se, right? You know, in terms of time and place, because then sometimes you write yourself into a corner. If you can keep it as general, but also specific (laughs) at the same time and have interesting characters that people connect to, because the bottom line is we're writing, we're trying to tell human stories, right? As writers, as artists, we wanna convey something that evokes emotion in the next person. If that is your first goal and you do that, then it almost doesn't matter what you're talking about. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but but then it, it shifts the matter of what you're talking about in terms of topic, because now I'm telling you a human story. That's why Shakespeare is still relevant, because he talked about human condition or someone like August Wilson is still so relevant because they talk about the human condition. You've been listening to an interview with Jamal Abdul Chaston, who is the artistic director of The Breath Project, which is a series of short pieces, eight minutes, 46 seconds long, which can be found at thebreathproject2020.com and a festival of curated pieces can be seen Saturday, October 24th at 2 p.m. and at 5 p.m. Pacific, and Sunday, October 25th at 5 p.m. Pacific. Again, that's at the Breath Project 
2020.com. Can I say one last thing, Richard, if you don't mind? Sure, go ahead. We definitely want people to come out. It's a free event, uh, donation-based. You can donate whatever you want or not. Free event. We, we really want to get the numbers in because that's going to justify us getting funding in the future and that this can be a viable initiative that continues. And thank you so much, Richard, for having me. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. 